You're listening to Return Again on the Land of Israel Network, where we look at Aliyah through the lens of Olim who have lived in Israel long enough to have perspective. I'm Goel Jasper, and today's guest is Rabbi Pesach Waliki. Rav Pesach told me he's been clear on Israel as his destiny for as long as he can remember. So why is it that he came to Israel as a kid and went back to Canada, and then when his parents made Aliyah, he decided to stay back in Canada? And why did he make Aliyah only to leave again to spend five more years outside of Israel, this time in the U.S. Well, it's actually an incredible story of commitment to life in Israel and to the Jewish nation that led to all those things happening, and I was pleased to sit with Rav Pesach recently to hear all about it. Here's Rabbi Pesach Waliki returning again. Thank you very much for your time. Honored, honored to do it, Goel. <laughs> it's great to hang out. We've we've had a lot of conversations over the years. We we live in the same community. We've we've talked about more than just baseball, but we've also talked about baseball. Uh, one of your true loves in this world. It, it, it was. I stopped following <laughs> baseball a couple of years ago. Really? Completely. Completely. Cold turkey. I didn't watch a single pitch last year, or the year before. Wow. When, okay. when, when Major League Baseball decided to move the All-Star game because of a law that was passed by the Georgia legislature, uh, that was a bridge too far for me. Interesting. So wow. I just, I, cold turkey, even though it was my greatest love and I had a baseball podcast and anyone who knows me knows how obsessed yeah. I was with baseball, I haven't watched a game since. And it was always wholesome. And then you're saying it became political, and that was the end of that. Right, and that's di- and and that's different than like the turn to wokeness and like yeah, pride yeah, nights, yeah. because that's that's the kind of thing that's sort of like a cultural thing. But like straight up politics, where the Georgia legislature passes a law to strengthen uh, to to alter or strengthen from their perspective their election laws, and because the Democrats were upset about it, Major League Baseball moved the All Star Game to Colorado which actually has stricter election laws than Georgia. <laughs> uh, and that was just like pure politics. Wow. And I was just wow. like, that's it, I'm done. Okay. I, can't, I can't give them my eyeballs, I can't give them, I can't watch their advertising, I'm done. And I, I, well, and I haven't turned back, I don't even know who's on the teams anymore. Yeah, yeah. Stop, stop paying attention. Well, I mean, we could do a whole podcast about baseball, but let's, let's go somewhere sure. else. go ahead. When was the first time you ever heard of the concept of Aliyah? Oh, I was raised in a family where, where it was a known thing, it was like an axiom of life that we were going to live in Israel. Meaning when I was a little kid playing with my brothers, right. and we would think about the future and talk about the future, and imagine it was always like, oh, we're going to live next door to each other in Israel. Like we, it was always known that we were going to live in Israel. My, my parents talked about it all the time, that we were going to eventually live in Israel. It was, it, was a, it was just a... Part of life from the very beginning. Yeah. I, I, there was never any thought in my, I never at any point envisioned my future not in Israel. I don't even remember not thinking that I'd be living in Israel as an adult. And when you were a kid, you were in Montreal, yeah. correct? Yeah. So for how long were you in Montreal and when was the first time you actually like came to Israel? So we moved to Montreal. I wasn't born in Montreal. Okay. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. My dad was a rabbi and had 
as a lot of young rabbis do, moved around to different shuls until he got uh, a more established community. Right. And so I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and as a baby, when I was a baby, my parents moved to Montreal. So in 1972, when I was two years old, my parents moved to Montreal, and we lived there until 1986. At that point, my parents made Aliyah, but I didn't go with them. But you had been to Israel? Yes. So when, when? In 1981. Okay. The, the, the year of 81, 82, the academic year 81, 82, my dad, who was a rabbi of the shul in Montreal, took a sabbatical year, and he brought the whole family to Israel. So I spent sixth grade in a Mamakhti Dati school in Jerusalem. That's where, I, and that's where I became fluent in Hebrew, and I was in a completely Israeli environment. And this is, this is 1981, 82. It's not like making Aliyah in the 90s or the 2000s, where right. there's already so much integration. Like, things were much, things were much less integrated and much less American-friendly in Israel at the time. Right, so, so I'm going to actually go back to baseball for a second, because okay. you, you're growing up in Montreal, you're a big sports fan. Mm -hmm. You're, you're a big Torah fan also, but you're a big sports fan. Baseball, hockey, anything beyond that? Or everything? Baseball, hockey, football. Yeah. Okay. Never cared for basketball. Still okay. can't stand it. It's a ridiculous sport. <laughs> and yet we're here talking. Yeah. Because as you know, I'm a... Yeah, I know you're a big basketball fan. I don't understand why anyone watches it, but okay. Okay. Anyway, so you land in Israel. No one's playing baseball. Right. No one's playing hockey. Correct. What, what, did, what went through your mind in terms of like living a year in Israel without that kind of access to sports? I mean, I have to think back to being an 11-year-old, yeah. so it's hard for me to remember. I remember missing baseball. Um, you know, I really missed it that year, and, uh, uh, you know, because it was a very big part of my life, yeah. you know, as a kid. But uh, I don't know, I, I, I didn't, it, it was awkward for me that year to not really be good at the sports the kids were playing. Because I was a pretty good athlete right. growing up. I was a good kid, you know, who was, you know, played a lot of football, played a lot of baseball. And even though I just told you, like, I never watched basketball because I, and there's reasons why I think the NBA is a ridiculous <laughs> thing. If, you know, if you could really watch college basketball well in Israel, I probably would. But the, yeah. it's more about the NBA. I just think mm -hmm. it's an absurd, an absurd sport. Um, that, that, uh, but uh, that's, a, that's a rant for another time. But ironically, I did play a lot of basketball in Israel because basketball was at least a sport that I had played in Canada that they played in Israel. It was the only yeah. one. Yeah. So I got really into basketball that year. Interesting. So that was kind of the way I compensated. It, it, it's actually a bigger question. When your parents were like, okay, we're, we're going, going to Israel, Israel for the year, like, yeah. did that sit well with you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, couldn't wait. It was great. Really? It was an adventure. I've always been someone who's enjoyed the unknown and embraced it. And so what I was like that as a kid, too. And what are some of the things you remember about that year? I remember tons about that year. It was, it was, a, it was a transformative year in my life. Look, the, the first couple of months were very difficult. I came home crying a lot because I didn't really? speak the language. Right. And the kids in my class didn't know English. There was a couple Anglos, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't like now where like, there's so much more English around and so much more, it, it, it was very foreign. Um, but once I got acclimated, probably took a couple months, before Hanukkah time, like once I got acclimated, I loved it and I became very close friends with the kids in my class. And, and by the end of the year, you know, in, in the way they worked in the classes in that school was that the class would, would, uh, would elect a, a sort of class representative 
to interface with the school okay. and, like the, and like the student council. And it would change every couple months. Right. By the end of the year, I was the class representative. Like I actually did pretty well socially. Yeah. So no, I loved it. So I remember a lot of things from that year. That year was an interesting year politically in Israel because that was the year of the pullout from Sinai. Right. And uh, at one point in the year before Israel, shortly before Israel pulled out of Sinai and gave it to Egypt, um, and there were lots of protests going on that year, which is the, the types of things we've seen over the years. People remember the Gush Katif protest. It was very similar with Yamit and everything going on. Yeah. Um, and the Lebanon war broke out. So in, in, uh, in June, you know, in, towards the end of the school year, like my teachers are all going off to war. Wow. So it was, uh, it was an interesting time to be here. But uh, a few months before Israel pulled out of, of uh, Sinai, um, my dad decided to take us out of school for a week. And we drove down to the Sinai. We drove all over the Sinai uh, just so that we could see it because he wanted to, you know, that we should see it before it goes into Egyptian hands. So we, it was an interesting time to visit the Sinai because Israel was dismantling its presence there while right. we were visiting. Right. So it was an interesting time. So yeah. I remember a lot of things. I mean, just I've, uh, it's to say, like, what do I remember from that year? I, remember, I have so many memories that year. We lived in Bayat Vagan, right, out in Rehov Uziel, um, and uh, you know, in, I used to go swimming at Boys Town, you know, up in Bayvagan there at the pool. We had yeah. we had a membership, and uh, it was it was a great year. It was a really a transformative year because I again, first of all, learning Hebrew fluently changed everything that that followed. Everything about my life was influenced by that. The learning of that language. When I say everything, I mean everything, because when I came back, I came back from that year, uh, fluent in Hebrew, my ability to learn right. skyrocketed. And I was I was always pretty good at learning. I was always near the top of my class in in, uh, in especially in Limudi Kodesh, uh, but that kind of supercharged it. And the school that I went to in Montreal was like a black hat yeshivish place. We were not, we're modern Orthodox, but my father very much felt it was more important that we have strong learning. So at a young age, we all started off in this school, this like, we're a Haredi school. Yeah. You know, in seventh and eighth grade when I was already over by Mitzvah, I had a black hat that I left in school, that I wore in school, you know, when I had to be, you know, <laughs> when I davened there. Right, right. Uh, but, but that's the school I went to. And I was always near the top of my class, but, but being fluent in Hebrew just, it, it supercharged things. There's, a, there's someone who's actually also from Montreal, um, who um, I think your family knew Moshe Hauer. Sure, I know Moshe. Okay, so so he he. I was, remember him from I remember was, him from growing up. He's a few years older than me. Right, correct. So yeah. when we lived in Baltimore, he was the rav of, of our of our community, and we went on a trip to Israel, and I said, I think I need to move here. Like that was the first time I ever thought of. Mm. Someday someone will interview me about my aliyah, but but he was the rav with us on the trip, and I sat with him at one point, and I said. Talk to me about the education system in Israel because everybody always tells me the education in Israel is horrible. And he said, I don't know about the education system in Israel, but I'll tell you one thing. In Baltimore, boys spend 90% of their time translating and 10% of their time learning. In Israel, you spend 10% of your time translating and 90% of the time learning. And I imagine that's part of what you're talking about here. Yeah, it was just, it was just like having that fluency you know, you just, it, yeah, it, it, 
You can read what you're, I mean, it doesn't mean, just because you speak Hebrew doesn't mean you can read a Tosfos. It doesn't mean you can read Rishonim. But I was in a really strong school learning-wise where they gave us those skills in terms of the mm-hmm. Aramaic and the Gemara thinking and all that. Yeah. So, but you put the two things together and it made me very strong. But it also, it also changed me in other ways because I, was, I, I went from this black hat yeshiva cheder type of school from kindergarten up, up through fifth grade. And then I spent sixth grade in this mamlachti dati Right. School in Jerusalem, uh, you know, and it so it exposed me, it opened me up and exposed me to, you know, to that uh, to that world. Uh, uh, very strong. It, and again, it dovetailed with the fact that, that, as I mentioned before, I always it was always an assumption that we were going to live at Israel at some point. I mean, even the sabbatical year was framed by my parents as prep for eventual Aliyah. Right. Right. And it was that was that was front and center. That that's what this trip is. It's spending a year there, and that we're gonna. It, it, it's laying the groundwork for us to eventually go back. Which my parents then made Aliyah in 1986. When they did, I didn't want to go. And I was at already that point, at that point. I was in the middle of high school, and like, I wanted to, I wanted to finish up in Canada. I liked where I was. Um, I was already not in Montreal anymore. We came back to Montreal, and for seventh and eighth grade, I continued in Yeshiva Gedola, but it was clear that this wasn't for me right. in terms of Hashkafa. Even though, from the learning perspective, I was very strong, um, it wasn't. It, I had to get out of there from a Hushkafa perspective. So I then went to Toronto to Yeshivat Orchaim, uh, where I went to high school. So for the first two years of high school, my parents were still in Montreal, and I was living in a dorm you were dorming, wow. in a high school. And then they were making Aliyah. Their assumption was that I was going to come with them, and I was like, "Listen, I'd rather finish high school in Toronto." And they, they, you know, they they uh, agreed to that. And then I, I lived with a family. Uh, in the school, friends, someone who was a classmate of mine, and and uh, so I moved in with them for the final two years of high school. Uh, Still, in and the whole way through. So you get back to Canada in '82. From '82 till '88. You're still locked in about moving to Israel? Oh, for sure. No, it was it, it never. There's never been a day in my life that it wasn't a, just a, almost like a fact that I'm gonna live in Israel when I'm older. I mean, even like later on when I'm like, and I went to college in Canada too. I stayed in, I stayed in Canada. Like after high school, I came to Israel. I went to Karen Biavna for a year. And then I disappointed my parents greatly by saying, I want to go back to Canada for college. And they were afraid I would get stuck there forever. But I knew I wasn't and I told them I wasn't. But, you know, it was very, it was difficult for them. And I would say, listen, I'm going back to Toronto for, for college. I'm not ready to move here yet. You know, I was very happy with my social situation in, in Canada. Is that what it was? It was social? It was social. I was very happy with my, so, with, with my, with my group of friends and, and my social situation. And uh, I'm not sure if it was the right move because hindsight is always, you know, you, you never know who I would have been had I stayed in Israel after high school and like right. gone to the army then. It's a whole different track of life. I, I went to York University in Toronto after high school, after my year in Yeshiva in Karen And in college, I, I probably skipped half my classes, but I, I spent most of my time as sort of like a Jewish student leader on campus, doing all sorts of political activism and, and getting involved with like, you know, being an NCSY advisor. And I was doing a lot of, I had a lot of very valuable extracurricular things that were going on. Right. Um, and I was not interested much in class. So that was kind of, you know, <laughs> and that whole side of me really became kind of my career. That's kind of <laughs> what I do. And, had you not spent the year in Israel, would that side of you still come out? You said it impacted. I mean, the, you spent the year in Israel. Which year? When you were eleven. Right. 
and you said that changed everything about right. you. Right. Well, the reason but why were I you said, already were you already an activist when you were a kid? Were you like did you you know there are certain kids like. I don't stand know. up for themselves, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was always the kind of kid who, you know, who was willing to stand up. I remember one situation, I think in seventh grade, where there was a kid in the class, or even younger, even if there was a third grade situation, there was a teacher <laughs> who, who I felt was being, was not being nice to one of the kids in my class. A teacher. I felt that he was mistreating him, and I stood up and I yelled at the teacher. <laughs> and I was just like, you can't do that. You can't talk to someone that way. How I remember that go over? I, 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 there were multiple situations like that. I was kind of, I was a bit of a precocious kid, but, yeah. not, but, but, not, a, but not, not, not in a misbehaving way. I had very good relationships with adults as a kid. But yeah, I was always kind of, you know, I've never been, uh, I've never been shy, I've never been afraid to stand up and say what, what I feel needs to be said. Um, never felt awkward about doing that. You know, having no, you know, being sort of like shameless in that way, in that way can, it can be very valuable. Right. Um, and uh, I think that's also allowed me to, to do the things that I do, which often are very controversial. Interesting. Okay, so go back to college. Yeah, so, so, I'm in co- so, so you're in college. So in college, I got very involved with, with like Jewish student activism. We had all right. kinds of issues at York University. We had issues of, uh, well, in Toronto at that time, there was, a, there was a well-known Holocaust denier who was sort of like the, the leader of a, of a group of neo-Nazis, and we went after them. And we also had problems with, uh, with Arab anti-Israel activists on our campus. I ended up editing a student magazine uh, that, went, that, was, that was, the articles in it were written by Jewish students across Canada and it went to all the campuses in Canada. Um, right, and, wow. uh, and I was just very involved in, in, in like pro-Israel activism and in education. Like I would, a lot of the students there were not, did not come from backgrounds where they knew how to learn Torah, so I would learn with some of them. This is what I did instead of going to class. I also misbehaved and hung out with my friends and, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, go on campus and have a beer instead of going to class. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, but that was my student, my student career. And then and then I, I moved to New York to work for Rabbi Avi Weiss, who I met because our student, our student activist organization, the Jewish Students Network in Canada, we brought him to Canada to speak. And I got to know him a little bit and, and he was looking for an assistant. So right. I moved down to New York, and I, I was basically a full-time uh, activist working with Avi for, uh, for a year. That's 93, 94. Yeah. We did all, there's all kinds of stories from that. We did a lot of interesting things. But that, but that also, it was very... And Avi asked me to work for him. I told him, it will be for one year, and then I'm moving to Israel. And during that year, like I was a 23-year-old guy, 24-year-old guy living in New York. I didn't, I didn't date anyone because... I was like, I don't want to get into a relationship with anyone because that'll only complicate things. I'd rather wow. meet someone in Israel. So I, you, and it was, I don't want to meet anyone until I'm in Israel. It's, you know so what I'm it, it quite literally was on your mind all the time. Yeah. And, oh, there was never yeah, a doubt. Yeah, yeah. There was never a and doubt. And of course, Rabbi Avi Weiss is a, is a big fan of people moving to Israel also. So, right. so he understood the year concept. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure he gave you no problem with that at sure, all. Sure, yeah, yeah, there's no problem. We had a wonderful yeah. relationship. Yeah. We had yeah. a wonderful relationship, and we did a lot of good things. And I learned a lot of important skills from him and important values, uh, even though I don't agree with him on everything. Right. A, lot, a lot of things I don't agree with him on, but I think it was, it was funny. Even then, I didn't agree with him on everything, and it was one of the reasons why he trusted me, which, is, is much, which might sound strange if you don't know him. But he's a very, again, there's a lot of people, probably some of your listeners who think of him, who, who don't like some of the things he stands for, and I totally hear that, but if you know him as a person, he has, he has more humility and integrity 
than anyone I've ever encountered in my life. Very true. I happen to know him personally. Yeah, unbelievable. Very true. And, and, uh, and one time... It is never about him. It's never about him. No, he's really, he, it's all real. Again, it's, I, I believe that some of the positions he takes are wrong, but yeah. that's fine. And he wouldn't begrudge me that. Like, right, right. you know, he'd be fine with that. In fact, one time he said to me, because that one time he said to me that, that, uh, that he likes the fact that I'm not a follower of his. Okay. He said, because, because we can have a conversation and I can push back on things. And he says, some, he says a lot of the people around him, a lot of his closest Talmudim, these younger rabbis, this is before Chovave and all that, but he right. still had young rabbis who were sort of like yeah, his, yeah, sure. his, his Talmudim. Right. And he said, he said, listen, he said, I, I can't talk through an issue with them because they're just going to take whatever position I, I'm, 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 I'm taking. Sure. You know, so, so he, he, I remember he indicated to me that he kind of liked the fact that, you know, like, you know I often disagree with him or, or I'd push back and you know, tell him, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. And he said that, you know, it's, that was part of why he liked, he liked me working for him. So, so he's yeah, I worked someone, for him for a year. This is, this is very interesting because he's someone who, I, I interviewed him years ago and I asked him like, why, why haven't you made Aliyah? And he's like, you got me. I'm not strong enough. I'm not strong enough to do it. And I look at my grandchildren who, you know, their parents made Aliyah. So, like, and, like, they are my teachers when it comes to Aliyah. That's what he said. Yeah. They are my teachers. And now, as you know, he spends a lot of time here now. Spends a lot of time here. Um, yeah. but, but that year with, with him, with someone who was always talking the Tzionut and Aliyah talk, but mm-hmm. was staying put, did that influence anything at all? Did that impact you? Why isn't he going? No, because when people, when people are serving roles like he serves, mm-hmm. I, I understand why they're not making Aliyah. You know, I don't, it's, um, or I did at the time. I think things, I think now, the moment we're in right now, yeah. I think it's just time for them to empty out. Like it's enough already. Right. Like now, at this point, it's just ridiculous. Right. Why, the fact that people are This is 30 out. years ago. This is... 30 years ago. Yeah, right. 29 this is, years ago. No, it's 30 years ago. Yeah. It's 30 years, 30 years ago now, I'm right. living in New York working for Avi Weiss. Right. Correct. Right. Yeah. So that year, great year of learning and growing. And Wild and year, everything. yeah. It was, also, it was also full of adventure, which was, you know, and, and a lot of, uh, and, and skills, meaning learning skills of how to talk to media, how to write op-eds, um, you, know, how, you know, and how to, you know, What's effective messaging? What's not effective messaging? What is the goal when you're, when you're involved in a confrontation, in an activist slash political confrontation in public? Like how to keep your focus and what, and, uh, and how to be decisive in those moments. These were things that, that were very, very important in terms of my development. Um, because I then, when I made Aliyah, the job I made Aliyah to was I was hired as the executive director of the International Coalition for Missing Israeli Soldiers, which was... When was this? This is... I made Aliyah on July 4th, <laughs> 1994. Okay, when, so you really did just stay that one year. One year. And then moved to Israel. Correct. There was no option to stay longer. I told Avi at the outset of the year, it'll be yeah. one year and then yeah. I'm moving. I didn't want to get stuck in the States. So where'd you land? Well, my family was already here. Right. So yeah, you're I, 25 or whatever. I was 24. Okay. Yeah. So I don't have a conventional aliyah. Like, mm-hmm. like 
the type of struggles of, oh, you're leaving family behind. Yeah. I, I didn't have that. On the contrary, I was going to my family. Yeah. My family was, was in Israel. I didn't own much. I came, I had one duffel bag. I didn't even have two, two suitcases. I had one duffel bag that had all my worldly possessions in it. They're like, you can bring two. You're like, no, I'm good. I had one, I, I had one it had all my worldly possessions in it. I didn't own much. I was very, I was a very kind of, uh, you know, I didn't have much. Uh, and uh, so no, I made Aliyah. I mean, like, I was, my parents picked me up at the airport. I mean, like, I would, you yeah. know, because they lived here. So yeah. it's an unconventional Aliyah. And you lived with them? Very briefly. No, no, no. I got an apartment in Jerusalem right. because I was hired almost immediately. I knew about it beforehand, but like, as soon as I got here, we had some meetings. And the families of the Israeli MIAs, if you remember like uh, Zachary Bamel's family, mm-hmm. was, was the key family. Yehuda Katz. Yehuda Katz, Tzvi uh, Feldman. The Arads were, were sort of involved, different. but it was a different case and they had a different campaign, but they, but they cooperated with us and they allowed us to represent them as well, but they did their own thing. Mm-hmm. But the other three, mm-hmm. and then there was uh, Yehuda Fink and Rachamim al-Sheikh. Mm-hmm. Sure. That was more about, there was more information indicating that, that they were dead and it was more about getting their bodies back, but it still wasn't confirmed. I could go on and on and on. So yeah. they, but, but the families of the MIAs had formed this, this, uh, this non-profit and they, and and, that, and they wanted it to be more of a campaign. And I was coming out of having, having you know, worked, uh, having been mentored by Avi. Yeah. And I came to Israel and I was hired into that position. And I, I, we ran that campaign. And that was, a, that was an interesting year. For, if you have listeners who lived in Israel at the time, they will remember our campaign well. Because everyone in Israel who was, everyone who was Israel, in Israel at the time remembers our campaigns. Our bumper stickers were, ever, were everywhere, these black bumper stickers with white and red on them, Lachzir, Tashvuim, and Adarim Achshav, and everyone had dog tags. By the way, yeah. I should say something about these dog tags. We were looking for something that would be like our thing, like our trademark. Our, yeah. And my brother, Tzvi, who you also know well, sure. was, so he and I hung out a lot then, because there was a, for, for most of that, of, of my first year in Israel, he and I were, were both single. Okay. And we were the only single ones in the family. So we hung out a lot together. And we're, and we're very close anyway. You know that me and my brother are very close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate that my brother is one of my best friends. It's awesome. So I remember we were talking about like what, like we want to have like something that like we could, could be like our thing. That'll really draw to mind the, the, the missing Israeli soldiers. And... Tzvi came up with the idea. He said, a dog tag is a very personal thing. Right. It's very personal. It very, very much speaks. And also the fact and the symbolism of it that it's part of how you identify a soldier. Sure. Um, so he said, let's make do- he said, you should make dog tags with the name of the soldiers on them. And that's where the idea was born. And it took off like wildfire. And now, of course, it's being done. But, but now, now it's being done for these hostages. Yeah. But that's being done because of this, of this paradigm that was set culturally right. that the dog tag represents... The I'm missing. sorry to say, yeah, but it's very what powerful. They're doing, what they're doing now, it's a miss. What do you mean? Because dog tags are soldiers. Right. No, but well, <laughs> I'm not talking. What, yes, what I'm pointing out it, to you it. is the whole reason they're doing the dog tags yeah, now yeah, yeah. is because of the dog tags yeah, we did. Yeah. So just credit goes to my brother for yeah, coming yeah. up with the idea. Right. But that's so like we started that whole campaign. There was also uh, uh, we put big ads in the paper. Uh, whenever you know American diplomats would come visit, uh, and there were some very we had we had some very powerful ads in the papers, like challenging rallies. ads. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
It was during it was during the Oslo negotiations. Right. So we were we were working very hard to to get the the revealing of information and hopefully ultimately the soldiers, which didn't happen, uh, to be part of like as a confidence building measure to be part of the negotiations. It was a very it was a very tough time for the the campaign had some challenges because the right in Israel didn't want to touch it because they didn't want confidence building measures. They didn't right. want the negotiations to advance and the left saw our campaign as something that, 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 was, uh, that stood in the way. Yep. Wow. So we had a hard time finding allies. Yeah. Uh, wow. It was an interesting time. But uh, yeah, so I did that for a year. It involved a lot of lobbying and a lot of meeting some interesting people. Henry Kissinger just died. We had a meeting with him. I had a meeting with him in his office. Right. It was a strange meeting. Strange man. <laughs> it was a strange man. I still have his business card that he gave me. <laughs> Eventually you meet your wife, no? I met her here. I met her in Israel. Yeah, she was studying at Nishmat. So how did that happen? Mutual friend introduced us. I was living in Katamon, and uh, I was in an apartment with two other guys. And there was an apartment across on the... Uh, we shared a landing with an apartment with, with some single girls. And one of them was studying in Nishmat and introduced me to my wife. Slam dunk from the very beginning? I knew I was going to marry her about an hour into the first date. Really? Yeah, it was what no was doubt. It? In fact, when I, the next morning... At that, at that point already, I wasn't working for the missing soldiers anymore. Okay. I, was, I was learning full-time to learn for smicha. And uh, so the next morning after my first day with my wife, I sat down with my chavrusa and he said, how'd it go? And I said, I'm going to marry her. And he goes, what? He's been on one date. I said, yeah, there's like no, zero doubt in my mind. Wow. Yeah. So was she as sure as you were? Well, uh, I proposed to her on the third date. Wow. Four days after I met her. <laughs> I guess she said yes. Incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's pretty Where crazy. did you learn for your smicha? And then what happened okay. from there? I have a very unusual smicha story. Like my smicha, it's just, it's very unusual. Um, I'm not the product of any smicha program. Okay? I was, so I'd been working for the missing Israeli soldiers. Right. And... Um, I kind of realized that I needed to get smicha because I had this at the time, my thinking at the time was, it's not my thinking now, but my thinking yeah. at the time was, and this is something that I got from Avi, which is that leadership of our community should, should always have a spiritual component to it. So Avi really believed, and that's why Avi really preached to me in our conversations. He would always say to me, no, you should get smicha. Because like, if you're going to be a leader and you're going to be pushing causes and you're going to be pushing moral authority on causes, it's best to also be, to have that title that you're, you're also speaking from a spiritual place. Interesting. Um, and that was, what, that was what motivated me to, get to, to learn for smicha. Uh, my parents were also very much in favor of me learning for smicha because they really felt that that was something that I had the skill set to do. I was always learning, meaning even during the year I was working for the missing soldiers, I spent a few hours every morning at a kolel. Near, right. near the office and learn for a few hours every day. Yeah. During my years in college in Canada where I was skipping all my classes, yeah. I would sign up for classes that all were later in the day and I spent a few hours every morning learning. I was always learning. Okay. Okay. Learning was always a part of my life. And I was very advanced. I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. I was always really good at learning. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Um, 
like most of my high school career, I was in an, I, I wasn't with my class for Limudic Kodesh. I was with older classes because I was more advanced. And you're saying it's not just because of the Hebrew skills. No, I love it and I'm good yeah, at it. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, just yeah. something that I, you know, I had a knack for. So for the listeners, I've learned with Rav Pesach, it's a pleasure. Thank like you. An Thank absolute you very much. pleasure. Thank you very much. It, it's Thank so you. enjoyable to learn. Thank you. We got to do more of it. Thank you. But anyway, that's it. We'll find time. Yeah. We're both yeah, busy right. people. Um, I had a hard enough time finding time for this. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, I was, uh, so I was living in Yerushalayim. I'd been working for the missing Israeli soldiers. And I was like, okay, now I've got to learn for smicha. What, where am I going to go? I'm not going to move into some dorm, go to yeshiva somewhere. Right. So I have to find a place in Jerusalem. But like, where am I going to go learn for smicha? You know, and I just kind of wanted, I was always very independent, wanted to sort of do my own thing. So... I wasn't necessarily ready to start the smicha topic, so I wanted to get back into full-time learning. So I walked into Chappelle's, right, and I introduced myself to the Rosh Yeshiva. I introduced myself to, to Rabbi Hirschfeld, who was there at the time. It was right before Elul. It was like a couple days before Elul. I walked in there. I just resigned my job with the missing soldiers. And I remember, I remember having the conversation with Yona Baumel, with Zachary's father, who I was very mm. close to. And he was the most involved of, uh, you know, in what we were doing. Okay. He was a great man. A whole other topics. There should be a book written about him. Wow. I mean, he was really a great, great man. People who knew him, if there's anyone listening who, who knew Yon Obama, they're probably nodding and going yes, because <laughs> he was a great, wow. he was a, a truly great figure, an important person in my life. Um, and I remember when I told him that I was going to resign to go for Smicha, he said, "You're absolutely, absolutely doing the right thing. You'll be a benefit to Am Yisrael if you do that. Like there was okay. no holding me back." Right. Um, so I walked. I remember I walked into Chappelle's and I went over to Hirschfeld. And I chose Chappelle's because I knew that it was, it was older guys. Chappelle's is, is not a post-high school yeshiva. People who learn there tend to be after college and they're more mature. And, and uh, it's, in a, it's a sort of more mature environment and it was a bit of an open environment. I mean, it wasn't like a, not really a Haredi yeshiva, but also not really, you know, super ideological in any direction. It was very much the whole ethos of the place was allowing people to develop individually. And I wasn't looking for a place to be a Talmud. I just needed a base measures to sit and learn in that was right. conveniently located in Jerusalem. So I walked in there and I, and I introduced myself to Rabbi Hirschfeld and I told him about my background and who I am. And I said, listen, I said, eventually I'm going to learn for Smicha. I'm just really looking for a place. I said, I'm not asking for a kolel check. I'm not asking to be, but I just, I'd, I'd like a, a base measures to sit in. Um, and, and because of my background and who I am, like I said, you can, I could give you references if you want to get to know, you know who I am. I said, but I think I could be of use to you. Because if I'm in your base medrash, I could also learn with guys. I could also be a show Lomeshiv, which you know, someone in the base medrash who answers questions. Yeah. So Chappelle's has like a Kiruv element to it, no? It's, it's, no. no. Chappelle's is for people who are already from. Chappelle's okay. is not about Shuvah Yeshiva in the classic sense of a place where people become observant or learn about Judaism. Oh, okay. No. Chappelle's is for a place for Balei Tshuva who are after that stage. And now they want to learn how to learn. And now right. they want to learn how to live a proper halachic life. And they, want, and they want to get the meat and potatoes of it all. Got it. So it's, it's more, that's, that's the ethos of the place. So I said, so I said, I said, do you mind if I just sit and learn in your base measures? And he said, yeah, we don't do that. We're not interested. Right. And I was like, oh. I was being like, and I had a Chavrusa already who was going to come with me, who was Rabbi Danny Schombach, who was working for Jeff Seidel at the time, running his, his outreach center at Hebrew U. Okay. And, he, and he was already a rabbi, but he was just going to be my Chavrusa. We're going to learn together until I decided I was going to switch to smicha topics, in which case I'd find another Chavrusa.
So I said, listen, I have my, so I had my chavru. So we were just looking for a good base medrash and Chappelle seemed like a good place. I asked, he said, no. I said, wait a second. I said, how about this? Let me stay here for Elul. We'll just try it out for the month of Elul. If at the end of Elul you want me to leave, you'll never see me again. I'll leave. Right. I said, but if you decide at the end of Elul that you want me to stay, I get to eat lunch. <laughs> okay. Driving a real hard bargain right. here. Okay. So he said, fine, we'll try it out for Elul. <laughs> And when Elul was over, they came to me and they said, we want you to stay and we're going to start paying you a, a kolal stipend. I said, I didn't ask for a kolal stipend. They said, no, we want to pay you a kolal stipend because we'll feel more comfortable telling you what to do. Smart. So I said, great, let's do it. And I stayed there for three years. And during that time, so about six, eight months after the start of that, I switched chavrusas. And my Chavrusa became Scott Kahn, oh, okay. who, became my, who became my partner yeah, in many sure. things. Yeah. Um, many of your listeners know who he is. He has a very popular podcast right. called Orthodox Conundrum, and he's still one of my closest friends. So we became Chavrusas there uh, then because he had just come, he had learned in Chappelle's earlier, and he also came from, you know, he had a strong learning background. And I just left Oxford and came back to Israel and was looking for, for he wanted to sit and learn full time. Yeah. And uh, so Rabbi Karlinsky at Chappelle's made the shidduch between us. And we, the two of us sat down and we learned Yaradeya. And Rav Yosef Kamenetsky, Rav Yaakov's grandson, Rav Yosef, who was a, a, a great, great Talmud Chacham, one of the hidden gedolim of the generation, Rav Yosef Kamenetsky would meet with us once a week and just sort of answer whatever questions we had and see where we're at and just kind of steer us, but we basically did it all on our own. And then I got tested. I took, I took tests with the Rabbanut. Right. But I also got tested by Rav Zaman Achemi Goldberg and by Rav Kulitz, the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, who I smichab from. Uh, but I did it all, we did it kind of on our own. I didn't, we didn't have, didn't have a teacher. And you're married at this point. I got married during that year. Yeah. Yeah. I met my wife during that first year at Chappelle's. So you get smicha and then what happens? Got smicha. I kept learning there for a while, hung out at Chappelle's for like three years, and then, uh, uh, and, then, and then my wife and I went, and we had our first two kids, and then we went to the States, because I wanted to get, my, you know, get some experience under my belt being a rabbi. So you knew you were coming but, back. Oh, for sure. It was this just going like, to be for a few years. It was going to be shlichut. It was going to be shlichut. Yeah. Unofficial shlichut or through like the Jewish agency? No, it was through the Shal program, okay. which I don't think exists don't anymore. Think it, exists, no. it doesn't exist anymore. They were training young rabbis and young teachers. So they, they gave us teaching skills and, and, yeah. and rabbinic skills. So where'd you wind up? I wound up in Newport News, Virginia. Wow. In a shul that no longer exists. I think I'm the second to last rabbi. Maybe third to last. I, don't, I think I'm the second to last rabbi um, of Newport News, Virginia. Spent two years there and then spent three years in Fairfield, Connecticut. A little stronger. Fairfield. Yeah, but I wasn't the rabbi of the shul there. There I, right. did, I did outreach and I, and I did recruitment of families for the day school and I taught in the day school. I had a kind of combo job, working kind of as a chavrusa, so, so to speak. So five years in the States. Five years in the States. At any point during the five years. Did we think like, about staying permanently? Yeah. No. You and your wife both, not even Correct. a question. Correct. You realize that's unusual, right? Yeah. So what do you, what do you owe that to? Just ideologic, the way I was raised, again, ideologically, it, 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 the, the idea of living permanently in Chutzlaretz is just anathema. 
It's just a fundamental principle of Judaism. It doesn't make, it just, there was never a chance that I would, that I would live permanently in Chutz Laaretz. And ne- like never, I, I, I never, it never, it's it, just not an option. And the creature comforts that the U.S. has? I'm not, I'm not a creature comfort guy. Right. Uh, just in general. That's not what makes me happy. Like I said to you, when I made Aliyah, my worldly possessions fit in one <laughs> duffel bag. I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not a creature comfort kind of yeah. guy. So when did you decide that it was time for the U.S. experience to end? Um, You're in Fairfield for a couple of years. Yeah, again, it was... How many kids do you have at that point? So two more were born okay. uh, in the States, so we had four. Yeah. Um, it was just like... That was it. We were done. Because originally we were going to come to the States for three years. Okay. We came for two in Newport News. It was an okay experience, but I wanted to, I wanted, I was looking to, I realized that I didn't want to be doing pulpit rabbinics, but I wanted to get some teaching experience. So I looked for a job that Dafka wasn't rabbinics. And it was interesting because the people working at the Rabbinical Council of America, at the placement office, wanted me to stay in shul rabbinics and to go to another bigger shul after Newport News. Yeah. And they were like, look, you have the skill set. You could become a very successful pulpit rabbi in America. And I was like, I don't want to be, right. you know, like I'm not interested. I want I want to develop some other skills. So I, so I wanted a job that had more sort of like running programs and 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 uh, maybe something involving fundraising and maybe and also classroom teaching because I had learned these classroom skills in the Shal program, but I would never implemented them. Right. So I wanted to gain more teaching skills. So this job ended up. So I said, OK, well, I'll do this for a couple of years and then we'll go back to Israel. Yeah. And then. Uh, it was it. So it was just, it was all meant to be just a couple of years. Right. So yeah, it was time to go. And, um, um, and so you had to figure out what was next. Yeah. So, so, uh, so Scott Kahn and I, who had remained in contact, right. uh, had, had an idea. We wanted to create, we always had this vision. We had talked about it on and off, even when we were learning together in the Chappelle's Base Medrash, of creating a post-high school yeshiva that really effectively taught skills. Um, and we had a, and we had an idea of exactly how we would do it. Meaning, the, the at that time the current paradigm of post high school yeshivot was not about teaching skills. It still isn't. What was it about? Or what is it about? I mean, listen. It's not just the post high school yeshivas. The way Gemara is taught, the right. way Jewish texts are taught. This is, this is a long conversation. <laughs> this could be a whole hour and a half podcast by itself. Right it does not actually effectively teach skills. There are students who pick it up and they tend to be autodidacts who pick it up. Sure. But to have an actual methodology of how to teach, how to teach the skills, to learn a piece of Gemara, to learn a Telesus, to learn, you know, to, to do your own research in a, in, a, in a Torah library and know where to find things. These are not skills that were, that, were, that were actively taught in any way. So we actually wanted to have a yeshiva that actually had a real curriculum and a real plan to how to teach students skills. And we were very good at that. We weren't very successful at recruiting because most kids coming to Israel, they want to know which school is all the cool kids are going to and, and uh, you know, where their friends are on a nice campus and a basketball court and you know, how close it is to Jerusalem. There's a lot of other things that kids are looking for in their year in Israel all the power to them, yeah. and selling that you're a small yeshiva located in Bet Shemesh 
that focuses on skill development and that the whole sales pitch is that when, when, when we're done with you, you are going to be proficient in learning Gemara, Rashi Tosfas, Rishonim on your own. Yeah. There's only so many kids who are interested say, in that. There's a lot of adults. It would always right. be a situation the that parents, right? Parents are all interested. <laughs> um, but and the schools and their schools were probably the interested. schools always wanted kids to come to us, yeah. and it was it was so, so recruitment was always a struggle. But we existed for about yeah. eleven years of active, it, it, including the startup year. I was doing it full time. Scott and I were doing it full time for twelve years. That's a lot to ask of an eighteen-year-old. That's yeah. You're yeah, asking for it was serious a, maturity. We had a good run. We ran this yeshiva, and, and we implemented our plan. Like, our Rebbeim had to be trained to teach a, a different way than you usually teach. The way, the way Gemara teachers teach in the schools that your kids and my kids go to is not geared towards teaching skills. It's geared towards teaching content. And teaching content and teaching skills are not only two different things, they're actually pedagogically at odds with each other. Wow. Yeah. One undermines the other, depending on what you're focused on. Yeah. And, uh, and people don't realize it, that. It sounds like and, and this is something that I've given lectures on. During that time, a number of times I gave sessions at Board of Jewish Education conferences about what we do. And the students of, of ours who would go on to YU, we would always get, and, and I still get feedback when I, when I meet people who teach at YU, either they, if they teach Tanakh or if they teach, or, or some of the Rebbeim at YU who always think about, they go, wow, these Sodia Torah guys, those guys knew how to learn. Right. You know, because we actually taught them skills. But, so it was good. So, so, so going back to the returning to Israel. So in, this is 2003. Okay. And, and uh, Scott and I, in the year, my last year in Connecticut, we were already laying the groundwork, planning what we were going to do with the, with the yeshiva. Came back to Israel. We opened the yeshiva. That's, uh, that's, that's what I came back to do. Yeah. And we moved to Beit Shemesh. And did you, was the yeshiva in Beit Shemesh because you wanted to be in Beit Shemesh or was, or did you live in Beit Shemesh because the yeshiva was going to be there? In other words, did you want to live in Beit Shemesh or um, like how did that? We had a couple, we weren't sure we wanted to live in Beit Shemesh, but Beit Shemesh was very high on our list because my brother Tzvi lived in Beit Shemesh. I had other siblings in other places in the country, but it wasn't, I didn't have to live near a sibling, but it was, an, it was a place that we, that we really were strongly looking at. Um, but there was also, at the time, this is 2003, and during that time period, 2003, 2004, because also 2003 to 2004 was our setup year. We hadn't decided the location of the yeshiva in 2003 yet. It took a few, until we, but uh, there, was, there was all sorts of, like the second intifada was going on. Right. And, uh, and there was actually a move by post-high school yeshivas to move out of Jerusalem. Interesting. To be, to be in more contained, like safer. Rashid did like Rashid that. did around that time. Rashid moves out of Jerusalem, right? right. So, so it was actually not a bad, it was actually a, 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 a positive selling point to be out of Jerusalem then. Right, right then, briefly. It, yeah. it immediately snapped back once you know, Jerusalem became, in the minds of people in the States, more safe. <laughs> right. Um, but it also was convenient to have it near, near our home. You know, so, yeah. So it was going to be, in, and, and Ramat Beit Shemesh was being built, so there was a lot of, Originally, it was going to be in Rapid Shemesh. We were, going to, we were going to partner with one of the shuls that was being built, which is what Leva Torah did for its okay. first few years. They were in the basement of a shul. We were looking at that type of paradigm. We opened this around the same time as them. We opened one year after them. Right, right. Um, and uh, so we were looking at, at different options in Beit Shemesh. It wasn't like we, it, was, it had to be in Beit Shemesh, but it ended up making the most sense. So in terms of 
of your life here. How has Beit Shemesh turned out for you? Mixed bag. Go mixed ahead. bag, mixed bag. Um, Beit Shemesh, the Beit Shemesh we moved to was not Beit Shemesh today. It's a different place. Our specific neighborhood, and you and I live a five-minute walk from each other, <laughs> ten-minute right. walk from each other, right? We live, yeah. we live in this, we're in the same community. Yes. We live in the same neighborhood. Our neighborhood is wonderful. The people are awesome. Like, I can't even imagine better people. We have amazing rabbis in our neighborhood and always have. Even when we've changed rabbis, the rabbis in our neighborhood have always been amazing. You know, and different. True. You know, like currently today, you have Ravioni Rosenzweig and Mayor Lichtenstein and Guy Raviv there. These are all very powerful people. True. And Roshankalevsky and Afeaviv. Like, I can't imagine a small community that condensed with such, with such uh, firepower coming out of the rabbinic leadership. So it was a wonderful place to raise kids. Wonderful, wonderful place to raise kids. But there was a documentary made uh, about 15 years ago that was shown on national TV in Israel about Beit Shemesh as one of the most corrupt cities in the country. And it hasn't changed. Beit Shemesh is an absolute mess. Um, the, for a city that has mostly developed in the last 20 years, they build things in such a way <laughs> that shows that they have no foresight, but it's not a matter of foresight. They, they cut corners everywhere in order to make more money. So for example, when a builder is given a, a, a chunk of land to develop, or the city is, it has land and they want to give it to builders to develop, and they get what's called agrot benia, they get a certain amount of money for each unit that's built. So from a, from a financial perspective, it's in their interest to pack as many homes as possible in and to minimize public spaces, because there's no money to be made off public spaces. But obviously that, that leads to uh, a kind of ugly and inefficient place to live. Right. So until very recently, for example, there was no main thoroughfare that you could drive from one end of HMH to the other on. And you're building a big city, you're expanding no it, because there's no money in that. Right. So the one main thoroughfare that existed when we got there, which is Mapilea goes down to Nahari Yardain, which was originally two lanes in each direction, it was supposed to be a main thoroughfare. Right. Shortly after we move in, they narrow the street, they put in traffic circles every, every so often. Torture. They turn it into one lane, and it becomes a with, a, with apartments the whole way and it, through, and it becomes a constant traffic jam. That's right. Even if there's only three cars in front of you, you're stuck. So let me ask. So, you. so the city, but, but it's not just our, it's not just that particular street. Yeah. The city of Bechemesh is is very poorly run. There's a lot of corruption, and and unfortunately, the way Haredi politics work in Israel, um, it's uh, it, it's unpleasant. It's unpleasant to live in a, a city that has an increasing, increasing number. At this point now, it's a majority with the new neighborhood, sure. with the new neighborhoods. During the years that we had a Haredi mayor, city services in the non-Haredi parts of the city, including funding for youth programming and things, was basically depleted down to nothing. Right. Um, if you drive around to other cities in Israel, things, simple aesthetic things like the gardening on the medians and the, and, the re, and the repair of roads, the roads in Beit Shemesh, cab drivers in Beit Shemesh, are constantly complaining, and they're right, about the state of the roads in Beit Shemesh. Things are broken all the time. So it's an unpleasant place to live for a variety of reasons, uh, but it was, but it was an, an incredible place, an ideal place to raise children. So we're very happy we've lived here, 
but we're not staying here long term. We've already we've already bought a place in Ashkelon that we're going to be that we're going to be moving to when my daughter finishes high school. So, I want to talk about the the whole corruption question. I don't want to talk about the corruption, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, for people listening to this who don't yet live here, um, and for people in general, you know, you move to Israel with expectations that they're, you know, this is the land promised to our forefathers, right? This is a special place. This is a place where we're supposed to get our business in order so that we can be a light unto the nations. And you talk about like what you were just talking about about Beit Shemesh. How do you reconcile all that? What where, do you mean? I mean, where are we that... Well, that there's corruption? That, that the same issues you'd have in some suburb in New Jersey... You have here. You have here. Isn't Israel supposed to be better than that? <laughs> no, and I'm not asking no, that question in the naive way that it's formed. I want your opinion about this. I, I, I don't know what to say about it because what you you have to remember that you have this melting pot of of populations that comes from all these different parts of the world also bring with them. Their, their, their political cultures. And I don't mean political cultures in the macro about what party you vote for in a national election. Right. That's what people think about politics. I'm talking about local political culture, how cities are run, how, how town councils are run. Because everyone's got them. I'm sure back in Morocco they, have, they had their town councils right. Right, that, sure. that handled budgets and things. The way things are run in most of the world is a lot of mutual back scratching between people and personal relationships and who's, who's closer to the to the people in power is going to get more. And that's just the way things run in so many parts of the world. The truth that, is that's the way it ran in the Second Temple period right. also. And, and I think, <laughs> no, so I think for a lot of the people, I think for a lot of people, they don't even think of the corruption as corruption. They just think of that's how the system works. Um, that's me being nice. Bottom line is, <laughs> most, I think most places in Israel are, are, are not like this. And there are a lot of really wonderful places and really wonderful, beautiful places and city governments that are on the up and up. Bichemish happens to be, you know, a mess. And, um, and, and, I, and, and, you know, even like, you know, the Haredi community, unfortunately, um, the political behavior of that, commu- of that community everywhere in the country is riddled with corruption right. on a scale that you don't have outside that community. So the question, you know, if you ask me, shouldn't we be better than this? I say, yes, of course. But, you know, that community has to look itself in the mirror and deal with a number of issues, this being one of them. Right. Um, so, but I'm not here to, I'm not, you know, that's, I, I have no access or effect on that community. But I think a lot of it comes from them. A lot of it in Beit Shemesh also does come from the old timers in Beit Shemesh who ran the place kind of like a local mafia. Right. Um, you know, and... And they view everyone who's not part of the original people who came to Beit Shemesh as, as you know, guests in their home, you know, who are second-class citizens. There's, there's all kinds of reasons this is this way. But the, listen, shouldn't Israel be better? The bottom line is the same people who are, who are involved in this corruption would give their lives to save me because I'm a fellow Jew. Right. They, they take a bullet for me. And, I, and that's, right? That, so... Shouldn't Israel be better? We are better. It's just it doesn't manifest <laughs> itself in every way, you know. <laughs> After you saw the, you changed 
careers right. dramatically. I right. I went into Jewish-Christian relations full so time. How's that been? It's been unbelievable. It's been. It's been. I'm so happy I did it. I mean, uh, I, I loved what I was doing with the yeshiva, um, and uh, it was time for change. And it was and and uh, working on working in that space of the Jewish-Christian relationship, of the reconciliation between Jews and Christians, and the and the drawing of of those Christians who are willing to listen to what we have to say closer into in, into closer relationship with us has been something that was part of my, my hashkafa, part of my worldview, going back to the time I was working with the missing soldiers. It, that, that was always a part of who, who I was, uh, who I am. It's always been a part of who I am. I mean, going, that going back 30 years. Yeah. And uh, so what I would always say to people, like when I, when I first made that transition where I was running yeshiva, and now I'm doing Jewish-Christian relations, speaking in churches, and doing all sorts of interfaith work, I would always say to people, you know, the only people who are not at all surprised by, what I, by, this, by this change are my wife and all my students over the years in Yesode. None of my students was, was surprised, didn't strike them as strange, because they knew me. And this is something I talked about all the time. When you say this is something you talk about all the time, what... what Meaning the importance of the Jewish-Christian relationship. And understanding what what Christianity is from a Jewish perspective. And I'm not talking about the halachas of Avodah Zarah. People get bogged down in that. Yeah. You know, and it's, and there's, it's much more, there's a much broader view of Christianity. Even like, you know, it's like people talk about the Rambam. Oh, the Rambam holds Christianity as Avodah Zarah. Great. Right. Very nice. Let's look at everything the Rambam says about, about Christianity. And people who've heard on, me on other podcasts will know this well. Like, if you could listen, to, we just mentioned Scott Kahn. There's yeah. a whole Orthodox conundrum episode where I talk about the Rambam and Christianity, and I lay it all out. But, but just to put it in two sentences, the same Rambam who says that Christianity is a Vodazara also has a tshuva where he was asked about, is, is it mutter to teach Torah to non-Jews nowadays? Nowadays, in the 12th century, right? Sure. Nowadays. And he says, he says, yes, it's permissible to teach the Torah, the mitzvot, and the pirushim to Christians, but not Muslims. Interesting. Right? People are like, what? Because he says Islam is not a Vodazara. Christianity right. is. That's right. But... And then elsewhere, he talks, about, he talks about Christianity as paving the path for the coming of the Mashiach because it's teaching the whole world about the Bible. So there's, the Rambam was a big enough person to have a nuanced view of things and, to, and, and, and the technicalities of the, of the Trinity and their form of worship, which, which brands it as a Vodazara, are a separate sugya from what Christianity is doing in the world, ultimately, as part of the big picture leading towards the ultimate, the ultimate redemption. Right. These are, these, you know, and, and people, so people know snippets and people have very black and white views of things. But uh, my, my understanding of the, uh, my feelings about the importance of the relationship with Christianity are part and parcel of my, of my Zionism and of my love of Eretz Yisrael and my, and my understanding that there's nowhere else I could live. It goes hand, it, it's part of the exact same thought process. Because we are living in the time of Rishit Smichat Gulatenu. This is the beginning. We're in that process. How far along are we in the process? I don't know. Things seem to be accelerating, but I don't know where we are. I don't know where we are in the process, but we're in that process. And the process of redemption of the world is not about the Jews. If Jews think that Geula means we win, they lose, and all the Jews are in Israel, we have a Beit HaMikdash, but the rest of the world is just going about their business, then they're just not reading the Psukim. That's not what Geula is. The Jewish people are meant to bring redemption to humanity. Right. We say it three times a day in Aleinu. 
The first paragraph of Aleinu is the most particularistic, Judeo-centric thing in the world. It literally opens by saying, it's incumbent upon us to praise God that he didn't make us like the Goyim. Right? right. And talks about how they do this and we do that. Hey, Mishtach Avim Lehevavarik, right? And then the second paragraph is all about how the whole world will ultimately worship God. It's the most universalistic paragraph in the whole davening. Right. And it's linked by the words Al-Kain, which means that the first paragraph is a means to the second paragraph. The second paragraph is the goal. The first paragraph is not the goal. Jewish particularism is not the goal. Jewish particularism is a tool so that we're the mamlechet kohanim. Right. Rav Kook talks about this a lot. Yes, of course, of course. Rav Kook's a great influence on my life. Very, uh, Rav Kook's writings. Even back in Toronto? No, 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 no. no. So when did that start? Discovered Rav Kook actually much more recently than I'd like, than I, than I, you know, than I'd like to believe. But uh, I discovered Rav Kook after I came back from Connecticut. Right. I started learning, learning the writings of Rav Kook, especially his early writings. Uh, his earlier writings from before he made Aliyah. And those writings are very powerful influence on me. And Rav Kook, and, and the, more, the more of his writings I read, the more this, this interplay between Jewish particularism and its purpose in bringing about a universal change in the world impacted me. And when you look at that, and you, and you look at the changes that have taken place in Christianity, and, you know, of course, you know, all, you know, not all the wrinkles have been ironed out. Right. But people have to, you know, we have to be patient. People have this very binary view of things. And short term. And short term. It's very, but when you think long term and you see what's happened with Christianity, um, and you look at the Nevuot about the ingathering of the people of Israel, and there's these nations of the world who are, who are streaming to the land to, you know, to worship the God of Israel at that time. Like, Okay, so if we're in that time period and we're back, so who's playing that role? Well, it's, it's obviously the Christians, right? There's, there's things that have been changing. And, and, and Jews, we have long memories, so we get bogged down in history. Which sometimes, it, having a long memory is both a strength and a weakness. So I don't have to say all the reasons why it's a strength. We know why sure. it's a strength. Sure. But, what Jew, but when Jews will say things like, how can we have relationships to Christians? You know, they've been anti-Semites for 2,000 years. Or look at the, look at the Crusades. Okay, the Crusades were literally 1,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it's, we, we live in a different time. And, 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 and people need to get over that. Jews need to get over that and recognize that the purpose of Judaism is not the Jewish people. Do you think you've lost friends over this move to the nah, world? Nah, nah, I don't know, and it wouldn't interest. It wouldn't bother me if I did. <laughs> I guess those aren't it's those not, aren't the friends you want. Not, not, no, but I don't think so. Listen, if I have, then I, I'm not aware of it. Maybe I maybe I did, and I just don't know. Interesting. But I have critics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a few web pages out there devoted to bashing me. It's really? just fine. Yeah, it's wow. good. It's good for business. <laughs> I have one more question, and then we're going to move on to the rapid-fire questions. Sure. What's the education been like for your kids in Israel? And, and, and I, mean that, I mean that in the broadest way possible. How have you felt about the environment in which your kids have grown up in this country? I've been happy about it. I've been happy with it. Um... I mean, I've been happy with it, especially the youth groups, the youth movements that my kids have been part of. They've been part of Ezra, like a youth movement. 
right? You know, like Bene Akiva, Ezra Ariel, these youth movements in Israel, the way they empower kids. Um, it's, un, it's not like the youth groups in the States. The youth groups in the States are run by adults. Right, right. There's always adults running everything and kids are participating in this program and there's these professional adults who run it. Right. And the, 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 the madrichim in the States are like marionettes, right? The, the adults are like... No, the madrichim are like, <laughs> are like yeah, they're, they're adults. But there's also professionals who work in the office yeah. and plan things like the NCSY thing. Yeah. Um, and, and in Israel, youth groups are run by kids. Even the, the, the most senior person will be someone who's a year out of high school, who's a Shevet Lumi girl. You know? right. it's like, that'll be the professional. That'll be like the boss. Well, for the boys, it could even be a 12th grader. Yeah. <laughs> so, so kids are running things. But, but that empowerment of them starts very young. Uh, and, and I've seen, I, and I have eight kids. Not all of them have gone through youth groups. The ones who have, I see how much it's built them up. And, that, and, and uh, so I, I feel that education has been very powerful. But also, the, the army, the serving in the army thing in Israel has impact all the way down to the youngest ages. Because kids grow up with that knowledge that that's part of their future. Right. So there's this culture of, of just sort of rolling up your sleeves and, 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 and doing. And it's interesting that in the youth groups, they use a lot of the language and the sort of ethos of the army. You know, yep, a lot of acronyms, a lot of acronyms right? and stuff. And they're trying right. and it's, it's like it begins there. Yeah. And there's this sense of, of just contributing. Right. Uh, that is just, you know, you're not a recipient. If, if you're going to if, if you're in the in the states, in the youth groups, it's not just that adults are running it. It's that it's like you're going to a, you're participating in, in a fun program planned by some adults. You're a consumer. The kids in the youth groups here don't feel like that, that they're consumers. It's true. Right? They're, 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 they're involved in, in, in something. Uh, okay. Rapid fire questions. Yeah. In the Wallachie house, Kedem or Israeli grape juice? Israeli. Heinz or Israeli ketchup? Israeli. What's the Israeli food you love the most? Trina on anything. Uh, but, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of them. I'm, I mean, my tastes have changed uh, since living in Israel. My tastes are, very, are, are much more Israeli now. Uh, but like, you know, I, I enjoy like, like the, you know, the kebabs and the shawarma loaded up with trina. Like that. Love trina. Love trina. Is there an Israeli food that you can't stand and you're like, how do people like this? Probably. <laughs> yeah, maybe Probably. I didn't ask that question. Probably. What I don't, is that food? <laughs> yeah, I, I, no, I'm, sure, I, I'm sure there is, but I have a very, I'm like the opposite of a picky eater. I like, I love trying things that I've never had before. I mean, I hate olives, so there's a lot of Israeli food that have olives in them. So there you go. But that's not because it's Israeli. Right. I, I don't. Right. I just right. don't like the taste of olives. But can't think of a specific Israeli food. The Israeli Hebrew accent. What's your relationship with it? My accent's pretty Israeli. You've heard me speak Hebrew before. Um, but that has a lot to do with when I learned Hebrew when I was a kid, and also the fact that I also, because I grew up in Montreal, I also knew French, and French has a different accent from English. So the idea of speaking a different language and a different accent was much more natural to, to me, like sort of mechanically. So I picked up the Israeli accent pretty well. But davening, you don't use it. I don't. I so don't. what's, what's, what's Why? the thought because, process there? Just because I daven the way I've always davened. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, I don't know, it's hard to, <laughs> never thought about that, but it's true. I don't daven in an Israeli <laughs> accent, but I speak in an Israeli accent. That is absolutely true. <laughs> that is strange. <laughs> um, uh, what brings you to tears of joy or pride in Israel? 
when I'm in Yerushalayim, and this, is, this happens all the time, because I'm, I'm I, I, I get very emotional. When I'm in Yerushalayim, and the streets are filled with people just having a good time, like we'll be walking around, like my wife and I will be, it'll be like a, a spring evening, or on a Cholamoid especially, and we'll be just walking around Yerushalayim, and the streets are filled with kids, and everyone's having a good time, and tourists, and everyone, and the, and, and the, and the, and the restaurants are overflowing with people, and I'm just like, I, I, I often will, will actually get choked up and start crying. Well, well, it just, and especially um, being in the crowds of kids dancing on Yom Yerushalayim, I would go to it every year. When I had the yeshiva, I would take my guys, yeah. and it was the most emotional experience for me. For me, just being in Yerushalayim, like when you read the stories uh, of what Yerushalayim was like pre-state and during the founding of the state, during those years were, were some very difficult years and during the years of the division of it with the Jordanians. Right. And you just look at what we are, you walk around, like you walk down Mamilla and you think about where you're located, that like this was like a war zone. That's right. Specifically where Mamilla is, was literally the no man's land yeah. between Jordan and Israel for 19 years. Like it was, and, and you just like, you realize what it, what it is. It's mind blowing. Other than where you live, where's your favorite place to be in Israel? My favorite place to be? Yeah. Well, Ashkelon, where I'm moving, I, I've, I'm blown away by that place. Wow. Yeah. Every time I go there, I'm blown away by the beauty of it. Anyone who's never been to the, to the beach in the marina area in Ashkelon, should go there. It is one of the most <laughs> beautiful cities in Israel. What do you miss most about the place you came from? You mean like from Canada? Sure. I don't, I don't miss much. I, I, no offense. Hey. I don't know. It's your question. I, 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 I can't. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I really, honestly, like... Like maybe nothing. I have, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of happy here. <laughs> I don't know. Because I don't have family back there or anything, and I wasn't so emotionally attached to the place. I can't think of things that, specific things that I miss. Two more questions. Sure. Is Aliyah for everyone? Um, is Aliyah for everyone? I mean, you have to come with the right attitude. So you, you have to come with the right attitude, but you know, the, it, it, it's, getting, it, it's gotten easier and easier to make Aliyah in terms of culture, in terms of jobs, especially with so many jobs being online. Like there's so many people, you could just do your job anywhere. Like, come on. Um, is Aliyah for everyone? And listen, we're conducting this interview in the middle of this war. Right. And we see what, and this war, although for us here in Israel, this war is about defeating Hamas and, and praying for our kids every day that, you know, I have, I have two kids and a son-in-law fighting in, in Gaza right now. You know, uh, it's about that for us. But worldwide, this war, uh, you know, was like the proverbial lifting up of a rock and a lot of bugs crawled out. And, and we see what's going on in the West. And I don't know where the Western world is going. So... I think there's a lot of people who Aliyah, I might have answered this question differently before, but I, I think at this, I think right now, yeah, absolutely, it's for everyone. Hmm. Last question. You know, people have magnets on their refrigerators with like cute sayings and things like mm -hmm. that. 
So if there was a magnet that would encapsulate your perspective on life in Israel, what would it say? That's a great question. Live life on the main stage. All right, Pesach Wiliki. Thank you very much for returning again to your story. Wishing you only success in the future. Thank you. Thank you.